This is the Agile Business Athlete Show, a well-being podcast that shows you how to beat burnout and have more fun. In each episode, Leanne will be joined by special guests who will share their secrets of how they stay healthy and energized and the simple steps they take to prioritize good health. And if they can do it, so can you. And now over to your host, Leanne Spencer. So Ruth, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. So you're a medical doctor by training, but you're also a lifestyle medicine practitioner. So the first question I'd love to ask is at what point were you motivated or inspired to to pursue the lifestyle medicine side of things? I think um, I probably went to medical medical school thinking that I would be a lifestyle medicine doctor, but not realising there was actually an opportunity to be one, if that makes any sense at all. Um, I, I've come from a kind of quite fitness background before. Um, medical school's quite into health, well-being, all of that side of things. Um, and I have to say I was quite surprised when I got to medical school to find that it was lots to do with things that are wrong with people and how to fix them in that moment, as opposed to talking about what we would call preventative health. So helping people to stay well, as opposed to mm. fix them when they get unwell. Um, and uh, so obviously completed medical school training and um, went into the NHS. Um, and it was only after three years that I discovered there was this thing called lifestyle medicine that was a growing movement in the UK. It's still um, a very new movement, but it, it's certainly growing more and more now. Um, and I, I went to a conference and suddenly found my people. Um, and from there, that was it. I went and got the uh, the diploma in lifestyle medicine. And uh, I'm now part of a, a small but growing number of medical doctors who are trying to push lifestyle medicine into common practice. Cool. And what is lifestyle medicine? For anyone who's unfamiliar with the term, how would you describe it? Um, it's a good question. I think um, so. First off, it's evidence-based. Um, it's a, a specialty in itself. It's an emerging specialty in medicine, which is evidence-based, and it's looking to help people um, and support them in creating behaviour change um, to help them live lives free from chronic disease. Um, and that covers all sorts of all areas, really, in terms of how we live, um, and that's nutrition, exercise, sleep, stress, all of those areas. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about those maybe more uh, over the course mm-hmm. of this. Um, but yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Okay. So does it take more, as you mentioned, of a preventative element? So really, rather than treating people with, with disease or with dysfunction, it's preventing them from getting there in the first place through, as you say, some of those pillars of, of good well-being. I think it works in both ways. So um, you can either deal with people who are uh, being a bit more proactive and trying to ensure that they don't develop any conditions, but it will also help people who are, for example, they've been diagnosed with high blood pressure or um, type 2 diabetes or who are obese. Um, all of those things, um, if somebody comes to us with those um, conditions, then we can help use uh, help them to talk, change behaviour to minimise or reverse in some cases. Mm. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm sure we'll touch on some of those those pillars that you mentioned before. Um, let's start with what, what I really want to talk to you about and to, to leverage your expertise, if you like, is around stress and burnout. Now, they're two very separate things, actually, and there's a huge disparity, huge amount of time and, and load that separates the two. But firstly, how would you define stress? So um, 
I think stress is a normal, normal response, a normal human response to um, anything that we perceive to be a physical, emotional or psychological strain, essentially. Um, It's something that we have as, um, you know, over the course of our normal life. It's part of what we do as humans. It's as simple as that. Mm. Okay. So it's not a bad thing, is it? It's a... In, in fact, the human human being was designed to withstand an incredible amount of stress. Uh, I think that's one of the something I talk about a lot is stress having an image problem. We think of it as bad. It's stressful. I've got too much stress. I can't deal with this stress. But actually, exercise is a form of stress, and that generally, if we get adequate recovery, is a really positive thing. So, just talk a little bit about the different types of stress, or, or does the body, in fact, recognise the difference between these different forms of or what people might perceive to be stressful? Um, okay, so I'll start with the first bit. So in terms of types of stress, we can have, um, there's probably three main types of stress that we would describe. One is acute stress. So um, that is absolutely what our bodies are designed to do to deal with. Um, and it, in fact, pretty much our, our response is the same across all types of stress. Um, but we are designed to have an acute stress response. And that's a quick, quick, you know, rapid fire. We'll talk about you know, cave caveman physiology, seeing a predator and deciding whether to fight it or run away from it. And that's what an acute stress episode is, something that happens to us suddenly. We mount a response that enables us to survive and then we get a period of recovery afterwards, just as we would going to the gym, doing a HIIT workout and recovering afterwards. Um, that's an acute stress episode. Um, and then you have uh, episodic stress, which is... Uh, the kind of stress that probably lots of us are experiencing, which is when you're getting bursts of acute stress episodes consistently across the day. So again, if you take it back to the sort of caveman analogy, um, you're probably not going to be seeing multiple predators in one day. Otherwise, you're having a really mm. bad day um, <laughs> and <laughs> you need to move. Um, but uh, actually, uh, in, in sort of the way we live our lives now, you are having predators turn up at your door all the time in the form of emails and commutes and um, all of the other things that we that we rack on to our lives that make them feel stressful. Um, and that's episodic stress where we're getting these constant acute stress episodes that make us feel stress, that give us that uh, acute stress physiological response. Um, and um, that, if we keep having them, tilts us into the third type of stress, which is chronic stress. Um, and that's when our body does its amazing thing and we'll have amazing machines um, in, in our bodies um, that enables us to adapt. But what it means is that we run at a kind of low level of stress all the time. And that means our sympathetic nervous system, which is the thing that runs our stress response, is on the whole time. And it's not giving our resting recovery period that we need. So we end up sort of over time breaking down if we are in a chronic stress position. Mm. Okay, acute, episodic and chronic. Um, The nervous system is taxed irrespective of which of those three types of stress it is. Can you talk about the the autonomic nervous system, the two branches, what happens when a stressful event occurs, whether it's acute or episodic or chronic? Um, Could just talk that through for us from a sort of medical standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you mentioned the autonomic nervous system. So you've got two two branches. You've got the sympathetic nervous system and you've got the parasympathetic nervous system. 
So the sympathetic nervous system is our fight or flight branch, um, and it's there to mount the stress response. Um, so um, I'll describe what happens with that first, and then we'll talk about the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. So um, when you have a when you have a stress episode, so as you say, whether it's any of those three types, um, you will uh, essentially get a signal from the amygdala, which is an area in the brain, which processes emotions. And it tells us whether we're scared or not, whether something outside of us um, is causing us stress or something inside of us is causing us stress. Um, So uh, it will send a signal to the prefrontal cortex, which is an area at the front of our brain, which helps us to make sense of things. So it's our human bit. It's the bit that gives us logic and planning. And it has a great, it has a connection with the amygdala. Um, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala talk to each other. So when the amygdala gets as a, um, a signal of something that's causing stress and emotion, such as fear, um, then it will talk to the prefrontal cortex and they'll decide between them how stressful that situation is. So um, you don't want um, your body going into full fight or flight. I've just jumped out of an aeroplane and I'm going to die. Um, response system if you just had an email that's bad news Um, you don't need that response so you're hopefully your prefrontal cortex will be able to have a conversation and say all right let's let's just give it a bit of a stress response but nothing too mad Um, can I just jump in there the prefrontal cortex you may not be able to answer this fully but is it essentially thinking well what's happened in the past how you know do I benchmark against that what what could be some of the processes going going on there for it to determine the level of stress response to mount? It's massively to do with our experiences. Um, right. So we, we know um, when you're in a new situation, a new stressful situation, you're, you're likely to deal with it less well than if you've experienced that situation many times. That's why the military has training. Um, mm. Uh, you know, puts people into really stressful situations. Um, and uh, it enables you to be able to have that conversation and to calm down the stress response so that you can function. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the prefrontal cortex will be drawing on memories and experiences to help make a decision as to how scary that situation is. And knowledge, of course, as well, in terms of, um, mm. you know, a bee coming at us is probably less likely to kill us than a bear. Um, and that's that's you know, that's not necessarily from experience, that's just from knowledge. Um, yeah. So so you use that information to help make that decision. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. So so once once they've made that decision between them, the, um, the amygdala sends a signal to the hypothalamus, which is another area of the brain, whose main function really is just to wake up the pituitary gland, which is another, uh, another gland that is there to release our precursor hormones which will um, then send a message through the bloodstream to the adrenal gland. This is the sympathetic nervous system, remember? So it's going to the adrenal glands, which will, redu- which will produce um, our stress hormones. Uh, and those are noradrenaline, adrenaline and cortisol. Um, mm-hmm. And once those hormones are then pumped out into the bloodstream, they will then go and respond with various cells that they have um, the lock to essentially. Um, so they will go and interact with cells that will pump us up and get us ready to fight the predator or run away from it. Um, and what that what that translates to, so again, we can't, you know, if you get that bad email or an argument with someone, whatever it is, getting stuck in traffic, road rage, whatever, um, your response will be to um, mount a uh, 
a, a reaction in your body, essentially, to enable you to fight something or run away from it. And that means that your, your muscles mainly will be primed. Um, so to do that, our breathing rate increases. So we breathe in more, so we get more oxygen in to oxygenate the blood, to feed the muscles. Um, we get signals sent to the liver to produce, um, to, to convert our stored sugar into ready sugar, dump that into the bloodstream because the muscles will be feeding on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, our arteries will narrow, so blood pressure increases, so it gets our, our blood will get shunted into the muscles, into the small vessels that feed our muscles, capillaries, and our heart rate will increase as well so that that blood will be getting pumped around faster. So essentially, our muscles are completely primed with everything they need to be able to run. Um, to, to fight or to run away, they've got everything they need to run that engine. Um, and that's our sympathetic nervous system response. That's our fight or flight response. Um, on the other side of it, you've got the parasympathetic nervous system, which is designed to help us rest and digest. So it's there to help us store memories. It's there to help us uh, repair our muscles after activity. It's there to help us absorb nutrients. So. Um, Once you've had your acute stress episode or your episodic stress episode, whatever it is, um, an episode where you've got high amounts of stress hormones going around your body, um, you you should be able to recognise in your brain, your brain will be processing it. So if uh, your amygdala experiences relief because the bear has gone away, um, then that will send a signal, um, again, via communication with the prefrontal cortex to make sure the bear's not just hiding around the corner. Um, it, It sends that signal to calm things down again um, and to then kick into the parasympathetic nervous system to help us to restore our bodies from all of the work that they've just done in fighting or or, uh, running away from the beastie. Um, And so those are the kind of two branches of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, What we find and what we're finding, you see this all over LinkedIn and everywhere else, is that everyone's stressed, they're feeling stressed. Um, mm. and we're all trying to find ways to escape our sympathetic nervous system activity and try to get more into the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, but yeah, those, those are the two main branches in there. Okay, thank you for explaining that. It's, as I understand it, it's very normal, isn't it, to be in the sympathetic part of the nervous system. It isn't problematic it's the duration of time that you're in that state for that is problematic. Is that, is that the case? That's absolutely right, yeah. We're designed yeah. to have that. It's a survival response. It's there to help us survive. Mm. Uh, it, it's just we are not designed to be in it many, many times throughout each day because it, it, it's um, hugely depleting on our body resources. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole nature of this podcast is about the agile business athlete mimicking the pattern of an athlete who would predict what's coming up, prepare for it, perform to the best of their ability, and then recover. Uh, whether it's an ice bath in the evening, a massage before the back on back on the tennis court next day, or whatever it might be, there is always that recovery. Athletes are really good in the main at getting that recovery in because they know that's what they need for longevity of their careers. But as business athletes, as professional, busy professionals going about our daily business, I think we really miss out on that recovery piece. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this is to stress, no pun intended, the importance of that by illustrating how the, the, the nervous system works and trying to encourage people to think about these little slithers of recovery they can get in, whether it's a magic minute of breath work, daydreaming out the window, sitting with your pet for a couple of minutes every hour, every couple of hours, you know, or, or more sort of deeper recovery, like a two-week holiday or a, a, a weekend where you haven't got very much planned. Um, 
Now, I know there's no definitive answer to this, but at what point does stress become acute stress, become chronic, and then lead into burnout? And what are some of the signs and symptoms as someone moves or moves across that spectrum? Yeah, I think it will be variable according to the individual as to um, how how quickly they move across that. And I always sort of characterise it as a as an arc where you go from sort of low stress. We imagine it. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing a rainbow going across. Um, low stress is on the bottom left-hand side, um, and that's actually not a good place to be because it's un- unstimulating, people are bored. Um, and uh, we're trying to sort of get somewhere in the middle of that arc, um, straight, you know, dead centre where our performance is going to be at its highest, where you've got enough stress to keep you stimulated um, and engaged and enough uh, of those stress hormones going around to really get some clarity um, with what you're doing. Um, but if you start, if you start tilting over that towards the right hand side of that arc, um, you will start to go towards uh, potentially episodic stress and potentially chronic stress. It depends on what you're situated, how quickly. If, you, if you're an episodic stress, then you're probably, you know, you're you're dialing backwards and forwards along that arc um, according to what's going on in your life. If you're in chronic stress, chances are you're just over. You're just over mm-hmm. that arc and and onto that right hand side and. Um, Generally, if people are in an episodic stress situation, they know they're stressed. Um, they will feel that they're stressed. Uh, they won't be enjoying things um, because they know that they'll be uh, depleting. They'll feel more tired, um, less able to cope. Um, they, they may find that their decision-making skills are deteriorating. They're making mistakes, that sort of thing, uh, simply mm-hmm. because they haven't got that recovery time. And most people who are in episodic stress will be saying things like, I need a holiday, I need a break. Um, you know, there's a sense that it's recoverable. They know that it's it's mm. probably if you're if you're in this sort of episodic stress state, it's likely something that you haven't been in uh, for a very long time. Otherwise, you would have tilted into chronic stress. Um, so, if you're having a bad week or a bad month or even a bad few months um, at work, your body will be able to cope, um, but you'll be feeling it, and you'll know that you're stressed, and you'll know that you need a break. Um, so, I think generally the first sign. Of, of episodic stress when things are getting a little too much is when you start making mistakes when um, you feel tired when you're not quite as motivated or switched on as you were um, I think that's that's when you know um, but if we're talking about chronic stress this is why um, chronic stress we believe is uh, pretty dangerous it's because it's quite insidious and that's uh, we've adapted mm. our bodies have adapted they're just low level pumping out stress hormones without our knowledge um, increasing our blood pressure and um, you know increasing the amount of available sugar in our in our systems all of that stuff is going on beneath the surface but we're not having the same massive emotional response so we're not as aware of it and um, you know the things that will start to show you that you are in chronic stress are more likely to be um, health concerns popping up um so you may develop some some health concerns such as acid reflux so heartburn um you may notice that uh you know your doctor may pick up that you've become for example pre-diabetic um they may pick up that your blood pressure is a bit too high um why pre-diabetic is it because you've got elevated blood sugar from where the liver's secreting the glycogen is is that what my that's, that's about yeah, it's not quite as straightforward as that, although that, that could be one cause. 
Um, some of it will also be just some of our emotional response to stress over a long period of time. And that is generally eating rubbish. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. Um, yeah. So, so there's a, it's a, it, it comes, there's, there'll be, it will be multifactorial, but, but certainly mm. some of it will be about that sugar being pumped around the bloodstream over a long period of time, attaching itself to our red blood cells. Um, glycosylating is what we call it. And that's what our, our test HbA1c, which you may have had before in a well woman or well man check, um, tests. So it tests how, how sugared up your bloodstream has been over a period of three months. Um, right. So if you've had high blood sugar over um, a long period of time, over three months, it will pick that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so, so if you, you start to see some of those kind of health complaints coming in, um, then it may be a sign and, and often and this is where there's that kind of bridge between conventional medicine and lifestyle medicine which is in conventional medicine we might look at that and say oh right you're pre-diabetic you need to um you know we may need to start thinking about medication uh we may need to give you a, a medication to just make sure your, your cholesterol isn't too high to reduce the risks of that all of that kind of stuff we'll look at the kind of the straightforward stuff in front of us and try to manage it generally with pharmaceuticals we may recommend diet but lifestyle medicine would look at a a more complete picture and say okay um, diet's probably part of it um, but what's your stress looking like and and Mm. uh, what's your sleep like how much recovery time are you getting Um, and it's sort of taking a slightly more uh, holistic view of the situation as opposed to the very uh, mechanistic view of, of medicine which is what process is going wrong and what medication can block that process. Um, yeah. and, and that's, that's sort of the difference in terms of, uh, the approaches, but, um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of looking at what chronic stress looks at and what the signs are, um, often, often people will either start, as I said, developing medical conditions. They may just start withdrawing, um, changing in behavior, uh, or compensating, becoming massively outgoing, but in a really fake way. Um, mm. Just, um, you know, big changes in behaviour to try and hide or mask the fact that they're struggling um, and they will be exhausted generally. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of waking up, not feeling refreshed, not feeling motivated, struggling to do anything beyond what is absolutely required. Um, and if you get to to the actual burnout, if you get to, you know, from chronic stress and, and that develops into burnout, and you mentioned earlier, they're quite separate things. Um, lots of people sort of think they're the same thing, but actually mm. burnout is a pretty serious condition. Yeah, um, I think it's an abused term, isn't it? I agree, 100%. And, and um, they, they are, it's, it's completely misused. Um, burnout, for the people that I've seen who suffered with it, they are, um, they're, they're done. They're just done. Um, and, uh, you know, I've heard stories before of people pulling over on the side of the road on the way to work in tears, calling their work colleagues and saying, I can't do it. I just ca- yeah. cannot do it anymore. And that's them done. They've resigned. Um, yeah. I, I know a couple of people actually, obviously na- naming no names. One uh, was wandering around the city, unable to remember what meeting he was supposed to be going to and called his daughter. The other went into work uh, on the bus and and just sat on the bus on a loop for several hours before coming home. Just couldn't get off where she was supposed to get off. I mean, it, it's a it's a horrendous thing. And I, I meant both those stories are actually one of those stories is mentioned in my book Rise and Shine. Um, if anyone's interested in in, in uh, reading about that particular story, but yeah, I mean, it's a really really serious thing. 
uh, and it's a term that it's very abused. Um, but yeah, what what does I mean? It's a kind of a nervous breakdown, isn't it? It's a complete collapse, mental, physical, emotional, even spiritual collapse. Yeah. Um, how is it possible to recover fully from that, or do we develop? Um, a sort of allostatic load, I think, is the term, but you correct me if I'm wrong, where you don't quite go back to where you were before. The baseline, if you like, or the watermark has gone up for, for in terms of what you can tolerate. Am I right in thinking that? I think, I think again, that's really individual-specific. I, I think it can depend. I, I think a burnout is quite a traumatic event in someone's life. And I think in any, in any traumatic event, um, somebody will adapt to that in some way. Um, your life will look different as a result of that event. Um, and I think burnout is just one example of a traumatic event, essentially. And so some people will learn from that and they will not allow themselves to get loaded in the same way. Um, doesn't mean they won't necessarily be able to cope with it if, if it did come their way, but they just won't allow it because they don't want to get to that point again. Um, other people will um, just basically not be inclined to go back to work um it, it, it depends on the situation other people will, will try to recover will, will recover and just go right I'm going straight back into it um but I but I think those are those are generally the people who will bounce back into burnout unfortunately um there's that kind of superman superwoman attitude which is mm. you know, big or go home which is it's really damaging. Um, and uh, it, yeah, I, I think it's not necessarily about people not being able to cope with things once they've had burnout or experienced burnout, but I think they just learn. They get wiser as a result mm-hmm. of having it and their perspective changes on what's important because a lot of people won't realise how serious burnout is until they're there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's life-changing because I, I don't think I know anyone who's experienced burnout who has been able to keep their job. Um, uh, you know, uh, the vast, every person that I've seen with burnout has resigned um, and they've had to take a period to really completely recover. And we're talking mm-hmm. about, and there's high yeah. profile people who've done that, you know. Um, yeah. It's not just about being less able to cope or whatever else. People who are seen to be really capable and competent and managing on the outside uh, are depleting resources internally to the extent that you see burnout mm. when you outwardly look successful. I do know a couple of people. One is Sam Brown. He's a partner at um, Herbert Smith Freehills. And I, I use her name because it's very public. She's talked about her burnout. She's also been on my, my previous podcast. She has gone back uh, at the same level in the organisation, but the majority of people, vast majority that I've spoken to haven't. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons for that as well. Um, you know, I think for some people, they've got into a job that was never really their true calling and and that inauthenticity and so going against their grain is, is part of that contributor to burnout. Lots of different reasons why we burn out, right? It's not just about volume of email or the type of work we're doing. It's lots of things, childhood origins, parental expectations, family difficulties, just, uh, you know, things coming together at a really bad time. Um, a lot of people, um, because I've recorded this this podcast and some of this, these episodes I've already recorded, but they haven't been published yet. But most of the stories are of people who've had to step away and do something completely different. But it is recoverable, isn't it? I think that's the important thing to mention. We've gone through some of the tough stuff. It is recoverable. Um, 
What if somebody is identifying with, let's say, the episodic stress and they want to start looking at what you might guide them within the, the parameters of lifestyle medicine, what would some of the things be that you would talk to them about? I think so. Um, I guess we're talking about lifestyle medicine that, that I've just mentioned those those pillars that we look at. So mm. um, the, the first is uh, nutrition, and that goes hand in hand often, as I mentioned earlier, with stress. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of driven to to seek out um, things that give us dopamine that make us feel good, um, and uh, we will also be driven by the kind of survival instinct to find food that has high calories in it so that's high fat high sugar essentially um and uh so often we'll, we'll talk about nutrition and there's there's no rocket science there you know people often want to know what the exact best diet is that will give them the optimal performance in life um and but but you know if we look at what people are eating generally most people can't manage five servings of fruit and vegetable a day. So um, I, I like to start at fairly basic in terms of if I'm giving any advice, look, just, you know, yeah. you know, just, just start with some basics, whole grains, fresh food as much as possible. And, um, you know, uh, variety, colours, all of that stuff. Um, and so I'll talk to people about nutrition. Um, but often nutrition is a surface thing that people want to talk about and they also want to talk about exercise um, because that's a surface thing and it feels like you're doing something, it feels proactive and that's part of our sort of cultural mindset is you have to do stuff um, to be valuable. And so if you're going and knocking it out in the gym and, um, you know, really, really lifting some heavy weights and making yourself sweat and suffer, then that seems like a good idea. Um, and, and that, can be a great idea and it makes people feel great but um if uh, when i'm talking to them in a lifestyle medicine context um if if we then talk about the quality of their sleep um how stressed they are in general um what the quality of their relationships are in their life those are things that people don't like talking about but are probably more foundational in terms of being able to drive the rest of the behavior change so um if somebody isn't sleeping very well they are far less likely to be making positive dietary choices during the day because they're not going to have the energy mm. to exert willpower. Um, and they're going to feel tired, so they're going to want, want to reach for the, the high-fat, high-sugar stuff. Um, so sleep is really foundational um, in terms of trying to get to the bottom of, of helping drive behaviour change. Yeah, we've got Greg Potter coming on to talk about sleep in what will probably be two or three episodes time by the time this one goes out. And I'm going to drill right down into the causes of, of poor dietary choices and what's actually going on within the body in terms of ghrelin and leptin and peptide YY and so on that drives those hunger signals or dysregulates them. But but yeah, I mean, can I just pick up on one thing you mentioned there as well before sleep? You talked a bit about quality of relationships. When we were planning this call, you put the word connection into a sort of briefing email i'd love to explore more about that if that's the appropriate link to make yeah. uh, what did you mean by connection the connection um to me and in a lifestyle medicine context really talks about um the quality of our relationships and that 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 can mean um anything as broad as um our faith or spirituality those things that make us feel connected to some greater purpose whatever it is uh, mm -hmm. the things that make us feel that we have um, a belonging or value or purpose essentially um, make a big impact but also about the nuts and bolts of our human relationships with each other um, and that's uh, you know how close we are to our family 
our friends, even our work colleagues. Um, all of those relationships make a huge difference to how well we are. Um, and uh, we, we talked and it's been seen in medical circles, the impact of loneliness on health. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, there was a, a well-being survey done last year, a national one that looked at how often people are feeling lonely. Um, and uh, it was, uh, I think it was 6%, something like that. So it's was 3 billion people um, responded to say that they felt lonely often or always. Um, wow. And uh, what we've seen in, in medical research is that loneliness has a huge uh, correlation with, um, with illness and poor health. Um, so, for example, uh, it's sort of been estimated that uh, being lonely often or always is uh, the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And we know that smoking cigarettes is, is, is harmful to health. We've seen that everywhere. But people don't mm. necessarily see that um, with loneliness, but it's a huge problem. Um, you know, another, another stat that was thrown about was uh, you've got a, a 30% increase risk of having a heart attack or a stroke if you're lonely. 30%. That's wow. massive, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, just the... Um, the numbers that you look at when we're looking at medical research are pretty shocking. You know, you're, you're much more likely to, to be obese. You're much more likely to be diabetic. You're much more likely to have heart attacks, strokes, uh, just poor health generally. Um, and one feeds the other, it seems. So if you have poor health, you're more likely to be isolated. Um, mm. And if you're isolated, you're more likely to have poor health. Um, right. So connection in terms of lifestyle medicine is talking about how you encourage people to connect with each other and to strengthen those relationships. Um, and that's, that's why um, we have, uh, you know, developed, uh, if you've ever heard of it, social prescribing. Yes, which is also something I wanted to talk to you about. So, yeah, let's talk about that one. Jumped ahead. Good. Well done, mate. So, um, so yeah, social prescribing, uh, something that was introduced a few years ago, and it's, it's sort of uh, hopefully something that's growing in primary care, so um, from GPs. Um, to have a, a social prescriber on board who is there to help people connect with their community. So we know that, that from the way that we're living, naturally a point about the loneliness thing that I found really surprising in the report was that the highest uh, age group category um, for loneliness, and I'm going I'm to say that we're going to assume, most people are going to assume it's older people who've lost their spouses or who are a bit isolated, that the group that responded to say they were most often or always feeling lonely were 16 to 24 year olds. Wow. Um, and the next group up was 24 to 35 year olds. Wow. And then there's a dip down and then you, you get back to older people that, you know, um, are the third, third highest in loneliness. Yeah. Um, and that really, I found that really shocking, but I will say, you know, I, I, I'm an A&E doctor outside of, of lifestyle medicine. Um, I see a huge amount of young people with mental health problems and um, it seems to be a growing issue. And I wonder whether that is um, a lot to do with how, how society is in terms of um, how isolated we are with technology. So we can sit behind screens and with certain phones. We're not getting the face-to-face. We're not getting the, the, ha- the, you know, the, the, the security and um, well-being hormone of oxytocin that makes us yeah. feel secure um, from those kind of interactions. Um, and uh, so 
So, yeah, the social prescribing side of things is designed to help people connect with community in person um, generally. So it's it's connecting people who are interested in gardening to a gardening club, um, mm. who, who like reading to a reading um, you know, society. Um, whatever interests you have, there are people who whose role it is as, as a social prescriber to understand what's available in the community and to refer them and to give them information about that to try and help them get out and make connections and links within the society within the community because that will help them to have a sense of belonging a sense of you know security value purpose all of the things that help us particularly mentally but that we also know now have a huge impact on our physical health as well Mm. And I think a lot of those things are missing when people start to develop burnout. They become more introverted, more withdrawn, connecting less. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, unconnect or slightly connected to that. I really love the idea that I know GPs in Scotland are prescribing nature. Yeah. And isn't that crazy where someone has to tell you to get, you know, we've, we've lost that connection, I think, in the main to nature, to our true natures. But it's great that at least the, the medical community have recognised because often a GP is somebody's first port of call. And if that GP can say, look, have you got out in nature? Have you, have you walked? Have you tried doing a walk with someone else? I think that's, that's great as well. Um, okay. What do you think the future of lifestyle medicine is? Uh, and then I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about you and, uh, and we'll bring this to a close. Okay. Um, future of lifestyle medicine, I think it's going to be a thing, basically. I mean, at the moment, I, even talking to medical colleagues, people haven't heard of it. They haven't heard of lifestyle mm. medicine. It is growing. There is a, a British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. Um, and, you know, they've, they've put together a diploma program that's based on. So America and Australia are way ahead in terms of lifestyle medicine. Um, and uh, we are we are sort of trying to catch up at this point in time. And um, so the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine is uh, is set up as an official um, organisation that's helping healthcare professionals get understanding and further education in lifestyle medicine. Um, at the moment, it's very difficult to do anything on the NHS with lifestyle medicine, um, which yeah. is somewhat frustrating. It's, it's difficult because I think it's difficult to measure um, uh, the, the, the sort of value of it. Um, although I know from you know my own practice that people do gain a huge amount from, from behaviour change and, and everything else. But um, I, I would like to think that as the movement grows, as lifestyle medicine develops into a recognised uh, specialty, um, that it will become available on the NHS so people can access it um, through the NHS. Um, and to, to a certain extent, there, there is a growing movement in GP um, because that's seen as a great place to start those lifestyle medicine type consultations and conversations. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are uh, prescribing lifestyle medicine courses now running for GPs that, that loads of GPs have been through. Um, clearly, they're limited on time in terms of having those conversations. And it's difficult, I think, to get a fully holistic understanding of a person in a 10 minute consultation. Mm. Uh, but and, and maybe we'll need to see changes in, in our whole system in order to accommodate a lifestyle medicine approach. But in terms of future, I think it will be available in the NHS eventually. Um, but we are going to need to have some pretty major changes to um, to facilitate that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, just a couple of questions on you. You, you said you're an A&E doctor. Um, we know that burnout is very prevalent amongst the, the medical community. Um, not across everybody, obviously. Now, I, I, you don't look burnout. That's not what I'm suggesting for a second. <laughs> but, you know, how do you manage an incredibly intense 
um, you know, job within the NHS, as well as everything else you're doing, you know, do you have any non-negotiables that, that keep you well? Second part to that question is what do you do if you feel yourself start to slip away from, you know, away from acute stress and down to down that spectrum? Okay, so um, first of all, I'd say that I don't work full time. Um, so I, I manage this side of things um, and I sort of balance it fairly well. Um, uh, in, in ensuring, I think if I was trying to work full time in any and do other stuff, I, I would probably be dead by now, frankly. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I manage my time in terms of the amount of hours I'm working. Um, right. I try to limit any kind of evening or um, night work as much as I can. Um, and I think uh, a, a lot of it is to do. So, so lots of people ask me questions about A&E being the most stressful place in the world. And obviously when you're there, it does seem quite chaotic and stressful and lots of people are unwell and lots of noise and emergencies and things going on. But um, I think it, it's almost, it's a fantastic, um, in fact, there's a TED talk by, I can't remember the name of the lady, but she's a she's an a, a emergency room doctor in the US who's done a TED talk on managing stress in in the ER and I always I've nicked it and I tell loads of people about it um, which is essentially um, the way you manage an environment in which there are loads and loads of things coming in loads of threats and problems um, is you have a triage system and that's what works in A&E you have someone who's at the front door who assesses how serious the problem is and um, will then you know triage things accordingly if somebody's really imminently going to die they're going to go to resus um, you know if if somebody's in serious trouble they're going to be flagged up to um to be seen early if somebody's broken their fingernail then they're going to be somewhere near the back of the queue because nothing is life-threatening about that mm. and mm-hmm. um so having a triage system uh, first of all just manages things in a and e in what seems like a chaotic environment we're just getting on with the things that are most important um and and you know you have a sense when you're in a and e of there's always going to be a queue. There's always going to be people waiting. Can't control how many people come in the door. I just have to see the things that are most important and um, are going to make the most difference. Um, and that's why we have a triage system. And I, you know, I, I kind of, I liken that to our prefrontal cortex in some ways. That is our triage mm. system in life. Um, it enables us, you know, the amygdala just takes in all of the input. It takes in everything. It's the prefrontal cortex that allows us to triage the problem and decide what needs dealing with right now um, and what we need to get stressed about. Um, yeah. and, and so that's that's how you know it works in A&E. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why when I'm in it, yes, there are situations that feel stressful and, and are very time critical and everything else. But again, experience teaches you to deal with those. Um, and um, so it, it, it doesn't feel like an overly stressful situation. Um, and do, you, do you also, sorry to cut in, do you also very, very connected to, to meaningful work to purposeful work and something that you find rewarding and therefore that counterbalances any perception of stress or that occasional moments of chaos that you talked about. Absolutely. I'd say that's that's a massive reason. Um, yeah. There are times when that, that feeling goes missing um, if things aren't going well or people are getting annoyed or, or whatever. Um, but uh, generally, you do feel like making a massive difference and um, that, that has an impact. And I, I was going to say, actually, the other thing we talked about, connection, um, often those kind of very stressful environments, and I talk about, I'd liken it to military experience as well, um, is it, it, when things are really, really difficult, you bond as a team really closely. Um, mm. um, you know, the, the working environment generally, uh, there's a fantastic 
team um, that I work with, certainly in A&E, and people have got each other's backs and they'll help each other um, and there'll be humour and there'll be, um, you'll find ways to make it enjoyable whilst being supportive. That makes a huge difference in terms of managing the stress of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brilliant. Um, Rapid fire then, if you have one, two, three non-negotiables that you do every single day, let's hear those and then I'll I'll wrap this up, let you go. Um, so non-negotiables for my day is um, I take a multivitamin at the beginning of the day because yep. uh, then I know even if I'm making rubbish food choices, I've at least got what I need. Um, yep. So it's my kind of my uh, my safety catch. Um, the, the other thing is I will do some kind of movement. I'll always make sure I move every day because uh, I know it makes me feel better and it makes my body feel better. Um, and I'm quite rigid with uh, bedtime as well. Um, so right. I always make sure I get to bed at a decent hour so I know I'm getting enough sleep. So I like an early night. Let's see, what's your bedtime? 10 o'clock. Oh, I, I'm nine. Are you? Wow, even better. Nine, nine, nine thirty. Um, I just need, I've just, my, my role used to be around sleep. It's got to start with a seven. But I said to my partner this morning, I'm going to make it start with an eight. And then if I fall short, it'll be seven hours and something. And just, you know, we spoke off air about being perimenopausal, which I make no secret of. I just think I probably need that little bit more at the moment to get the same amount done. So that, you know, but but I guess a good place to summarise is is everything's individual. You've said several times it's very personal uh, and be willing to adapt whatever you're doing. Even those non-negotiables, you may need to adapt every now and again. But um, Ruth, I want to thank you for your expertise and for your time. It's been really interesting. So thank you very much. It was my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Want more? Take our Wellbeing at Work company scorecard and get a free personalised report full of actionable insights. Or if you're interested in finding out what your health IQ is, take our Health IQ scorecard. Links can be found in the show notes. And finally, if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you.